The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Good morning, Roxy Soxy. A good morning, Tam Tam. Okay, I've got to ask I know. you if you have Tell heard me. about this. I have. No, <laughs> you have. You're like, <laughs> I just just say yes. <laughs> Did you hear about the lady who was 29 weeks pregnant? She was on a flight from Salt Lake City. <gasps> I saw. And she gave birth over the ocean. But she did not know she was pregnant at 29 weeks. Now. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't hear that part. Yes, she did not know that she was pregnant. 29 29 weeks, I couldn't even like fit into a door. No, and the the morning sickness from the first 14 weeks. She was just like, I've drunk too many margaritas. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) probably not good for the baby. (laughs) Totally, eternally hungover. Now, I did not know that I was pregnant until I was eight weeks. Okay, that's that's not twenty nine no. weeks though giving no, birth. But not. but eight weeks is eight weeks is yes. like you know have I eaten too many burgers and yes. like the gluten intolerance that I suffer from has just given me a bit of bloating. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of eight weeks pregnant. And if you're irregular, which I'm actually mm-hmm. never irregular, I'm I'm like to the T, if not clockwork. a day or two, like yes. clockwork uh-huh. to the point where like I pee on you know sticks too. Yeah, I mean you've been there. You've yeah. peed on you've you haven't peed oh. on the stick with me, but you've held my hand while I did. If I'm stall. two days late, I'm just like I'm freaked <laughs> out. But yes. Some people just miss their periods, which I, I mean, find very strange. It, it is strange. But to me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's pretty far. I mean, that's over halfway through your pregnancy to not right. know that you're pregnant. And then right. she had to fly another three hours to Hawaii with the baby still, you know, like they had to yeah. make like an, an incubator for the baby and all this stuff. So it was kind of crazy. I think but... I saw this on TikTok because that's Did where you... I get my real news <laughs> yeah, from. Exactly. Um, and I was really proud that the woman who videoed this poor woman who looked like she was in shock <laughs> did not show her face because I was like, that's kind of, you know, an invasion of privacy a little bit. But then I also thought, what's her, what's, where's her birth? Like, where's her birth place if uh, you're over the ocean? Yeah. I mean, it, like, what do you put on the birth certificate? Do you just say the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. You just in say. In the air? Yeah. Like, well, our next guest might have a little more information yes. um, about all these things, including not knowing if you're pregnant for 29 weeks. Um, this is actually an episode that I have been looking forward to for a long time. We've tried to get this amazing woman on our podcast for a while, but she's so busy talking about vaginas all over the world <laughs> that it's taken us a while to get her on here. But um, it's yes. my favorite subject, not just because of sex, but there's so many things to learn about the vagina and your menstrual cycle and, you know, 
what's going on down there. So I'm just excited to talk to an expert who knows a lot more than I do. Yes. So she is, she is like the vagina wonder woman. I mean, she, Mm -hmm. Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN. She's Mm -hmm. a pain medicine doctor. She's the author of the vagina Bible, the menopause manifesto. Mm -hmm. She's been featured on the New York times, CBC today show and the cut, which is where I first saw her and I hit her up right away. I was like, Dr. Jen, you have to tell me about my vagina. I was like, you have to come on our podcast. And luckily she agreed. And she has been referred to as the vagina expert, the Joan of Arc of vaginas. And she's going to give us, she is going to give us the vagina 101 with her vagina. And so it's going to be all things vagina. And how many times can we say vagina in one episode? (laughs) Yay, Dr. Jen. Welcome. (laughs) Exactly. Let's hear it for the vagina. Let's hear it for the vagina. So how did you get started on this course, this path? way to all things vagina? Uh, well, I mean, I think with a lot of things in my life, it probably started out of righteous indignation. Mm. Um, so, you know, I got interested in medical school in OBGYN because I was, um, I was annoyed that all of the people lecturing me were men and not that any of them were bad men. They weren't like creepy me too men. They were just men. And I was like, really? really like, and this was the eighties. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like, there were women in medicine that weren't as many as now, but I thought, really, really. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I just, that just kind of stuck with me. And I just thought, you know, women deserve the best and I'm the best. So that's what I'm going to do. You know, what's interesting is, um, I haven't had hormone issues really ever until I had my two babies and I was rushed to the ER. Um, I was rushed to the ER last month with a massive cyst in my right ovary. Mm -hmm. Now, all the male doctors diagnosed me with before they actually found out what was going on and Mm -hmm. like a, a, a bowel blockage. (laughs) They thought, you know, I had a bowel blockage. They thought I had a twisted colon or whatever it was. And then when they found the cyst in my right ovary, they kind of just said, well, this is how it is with women. It's constant. Lots of people have this and sent me on my merry way. And I'm like, but I'm in pain and I need help. And what, where do I go from here? And, and, and what does this even mean? And it just seemed like even now in 2021, such a lack of information when it comes to female health issues. And I put it on my Instagram and I got a flood of responses of people who have like suffered from PCOS and endometriosis and cysts their whole lives and have, have been misdiagnosed for most of their lives. Mm. And I just was shocked that we're still having these conversations when it comes to women's health. And like, why aren't we talking about it? Why aren't we getting the information out there? Why aren't we helping women who are suffering? Well, I think that's a real um, complex question because I think it's related to a lot of different things. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think first of all, there's an inability to talk about women's bodies in general, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that. Uh, And the fact that, that, that many women are dismissed and they have their pain not believed. So there's also that, but there's also, um, I think a lot of, uh, like misunderstanding about, about also, and this is due to medicine, I think being really bad at explaining what they do. So, you know, so many times when we're seeing someone in an acute emergency, we're trying to figure out is, you know, life threatening. Yes. Life threatening. No. And so, you know, the large ovarian cyst causing a lot of pain, it's life-threatening, no, but sometimes the way some doctors say that is Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's not important, 
right? right? So, you know, so they're looking for the, the, the bowel blockage or the twisted ovary or those mm-hmm. things first, because those are surgical emergencies and mm-hmm. they have to be treated, or, you know, urgently. Mm-hmm. And then, um, often what happens, I think is because medicine has a lot of communication issues. Mm-hmm. The way it's told to someone is it sounds like it's not important when really what the meaning is, is, well, it's not surgically important right, right. at this moment. And those are different things. And even though they sound very similar, they're quite different and can be heard in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, that there's a, sort of a lot of dismissal, a lot of sort of sucking it up and just really a lot of, I really chalk it all down to bad communication. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's a big, a big component. You know, there are a lot of uh, outlets out there. There are a lot of people out there that talk, you know, a lot about vaginas and about women's Mm -hmm. health and about particularly about hygiene and how you take care of the vagina. You know, do you use, you know, powders, cleansers, vaginal steaming? There are all of these sort of things that have been going around about how to take care of the vagina. And I was always taught that the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. Meaning. I never clean. Do you clean? I mean, yeah. this sounds grand. I kind of, I don't, I wash myself in yeah. shower, but in I'm, not, shower, I'm no. yeah, I'm not having like some regime. Are no, you? No, I just do like a shower, you know, like soap and water in the shower, like regular cleaning. But yeah, so I always heard it was a self-cleaning oven, but now we were hearing all these reports about people talking about, you know, you should use this cream or you should mm-hmm. use this technique to clean your vagina. What is true and what isn't? Well, anybody selling you something specially for your vulvar vagina is generally full of shit. I guess mm-hmm. that's really the, you know, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there aren't just there, there is no special cleaning or prep done. And all of this is really a remnant of purity culture, right? So many, there's a long history of putting stuff in the vagina for a couple of reasons. One, because nobody knew anything about medicine thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. right? Like, so you know, and they blamed everything that happened to women on the uterus. And how do you access the uterus through the vagina, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is sort of bad history that's maintained. Um, A lot of these products are also astringent. So they tighten the vagina, right? Which Mm -hmm. is not a good thing. Um, But apparently that gives men some pleasure. Obviously those are men who have problems. I don't know. Um, But, but so it's born from that. And it's just been rebranded to sell products in a modern age. I mean, douching is a remnant of, you know, the idea that douching could prevent pregnancy. It it can't. Mm. Um, But also that, you know, cleaning is needed and cleaning sort of became a euphemism for preventing pregnancy. So all of this stuff is sort of like a bad game of telephone that's all been mixed up and it's really just to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no special care needed for your vagina or your vulva, mm-hmm. um, but certainly not for your vagina. You do not need to put your fingers inside and clean. You don't need to check for discharge. You need to do any of that. Uh, and your vulva, you know, really many people are fine just with water, but mm-hmm. a gentle cleanser is good. We generally don't recommend soap because soap's pretty drying and can raise the pH of your skin, but I, I don't recommend soap for anywhere on your body except your hands. A cleanser is better. Mm. So you said that some of these products are about tightening the vagina. As we age, just like everything else, sort of the skin, the elasticity of the skin starts to sag. Does our vaginas get old? And is that as sad as they <laughs> sound? That sounds. I feel like it's the only thing I have left. Um, I had a C-section. Um, so I'm like, okay, at least that's okay. But as we age, I'm like, wow, is it is it all over our body too? And what does that look like? And mm. also, do women start to get, if, if, if you're going to tell me that it does age and it starts to not be as tight, 
do women suffer like depression from that or loss of, you know, sensation or sex life? Like how, how does the vagina age? Mm. So everything ages, everything in our body ages, our brain ages, our eyes age, our, you know, our breasts age, our, mm -hmm. and vagina and bulbous do as well. Mm -hmm. And so as we age, we lose collagen. And so that can affect elasticity of all tissues, right? That's why we start to get a little sagginess in the faces. That's why we get wrinkles. And so on the vulva, um, there also are some changes and in the vagina, definitely. There are changes also related to dropping estrogen levels. And that absolutely also affects collagen. It affects mm. lubrication and it affects actually the thickness of the cells or the plumpness and mm. that that can also be treated. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's not something that has to be inevitable. There's definitely medical therapy for it. If, if you're, if it's bothersome and problematic, it doesn't happen to everybody, but certainly, mm. you know, people who remain sexually active using their vagina, um, you know, probably 60 to 80% will notice something. Um, and so, yeah, and it can present just as dryness. It can present as pain with sex. Uh, it can present as a lot of different things and there's all treatments that won't cause depression though. Mm, um, right. you know, people, uh, you know, people may certainly, um, the whole process of aging may affect some people mm -hmm. and some people that may weigh on them and, and possibly be a cofactor in their depression. But mm -hmm. I wouldn't sort of blame, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't ascribe no a sex life with depression. <laughs> but I think it's all complex, right? Mm, so, right, right. you know, if if you have depression, that might affect your libido, that might affect right. how you feel about your body. And these things may sort of become like a feedback loop. Um, mm -hmm. but but you know, treating a vaginal problem isn't going to treat depression. Yeah. You know, speaking of since you brought up sex, let's talk about sex because we, we are, love to we love sex. We're a very sex positive podcast. Very. And um, yes, we like it. We like it a lot. Um, and let's talk about orgasm because mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of confusion between a clitoral orgasm and a G spot orgasm. Um, can you kind of walk us through actually where the G spot is and like the differences between the two orgasms? Mm -hmm. So there isn't any difference. That's oh. all a big lie. Oh, it's a myth. Um, yeah, okay. there there isn't like a G spot. So oh. yeah, so we had the clitoris is much larger than people think. So what you see okay. is the glands, that little part. Hmm. But the clitoris is actually a really large organ that sort of wraps around the urethra and also has these sort of two branches that are deep to the labia and kind of around the vagina. And so you can access the clitoris by many different ways. You can access oh it externally on the glands, mm -hmm. but if you touch in the lower third of the vagina and push anteriorly where the urethra is, you may also access the clitoris that way. So they're not distinct things. And the original paper written about it that has sort of been misinterpreted and called the G-spot really it's a clitorourethrovaginal complex. I mean, maybe that sounds less sexy, but but you basically there's a lot of different um, sort of pleasurable tissue in the area, and if one spot feels better for you, that's great. But you know, all roads lead from the clitoris to the brain, and when we say the clitoris, we're saying this larger structure. This idea that that sex is that an orgasm with penile penetration, the so-called vaginal orgasm is better is an absolute misogynistic lie that's built around the idea that sex is better with a penis. Well, there's lots of people who have great sex without a penis. There's lots of people have great orgasms without a penis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
many women are not capable of having um, an orgasm with just penile penetration alone. In fact, it's uncommon to. Most people require direct sort of manual pressure um, sort of to the clitoris with something more than a penis. So that doesn't mean they're abnormal. They have great orgasms. And, you know, so I think it's important to get away from the concept of a clitoral orgasm and a vaginal orgasm because they're not really correct terms either. It's all the clitoris. It's you might be accessing the clitoris in different ways. Like, for example, if you put a vibrator on your labia mm -hmm. and that brings you to orgasm, well, that's because it stimulated the clitoral tissue beneath. And that orgasm is no different than, you know, an orgasm. Uh, that's achieved with penile penetration. Now that's biomechanically speaking, mm -hmm. it's really no different. Now, how someone sex though is also like how you feel about your body and closeness and other things. And so an orgasm with a vibrator might feel different than an orgasm with your partner, but that's kind of like ice cream flavors. One's not better than the other, you know, there's lots of great ice cream flavors. <laughs> Tamman, we don't need a roadmap. I, I literally, I, I just like had... <laughs> This like everything I feel like everything I've known my whole life has been <laughs> like completely wrong because I only had a um, G sport orgasm with my husband and I thought, well, sorry, again, there's no such thing as a G well, it, it, like through sex. Uh but maybe, like you said, it was because I felt safe and comfortable and open and whatever that means that my body was able to receive the orgasm in different areas than I hadn't before, because maybe there was a, uh, a complete glass in front of me or a boundary that I didn't want to go there. So I was only accepting a certain type of orgasm who knows, mm -hmm. you know, but this is completely eye-opening. It's also possible that his penis was shaped in such a way that just fit really well. He's very happy right, right now. <laughs> right. So, so they've actually done MRI studies of oh. people having sex to look at what's getting hit. Oh, um, as they're having sex. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so for, you know, so in general, you know, so different people are going to get different. So if you think about the clitoris as sort of this like inverted wishbone mm -hmm. that sort of sits on top of the urethra, right. Mm -hmm. That, and kind of wraps around it's intimate. Everybody's still shaped a little bit different, right? Like, mm -hmm. so for some people, the penis is going to provide a lot of pressure on some of the clitoral tissue. And so for some people that'll bring them to orgasm, but other people are gonna require, you know, more manual or direct stimulation. Um, and so that's the great thing about sex is you get to try all different ways and whatever feel, you know, I think it's really important to get away from this like right or wrong idea. And that's what happens. I think when people talk about clitoral or vaginal orgasms, it's like this idea that a vaginal orgasm is some kind of like Zenith. Well, we only believe it's a Zenith because Freud said that that was the only mature orgasm and it's because it needed a penis. Right. Uh, so it's just really about what feels good. If you're having a good time and it feels good. Great. If you want to try something else, you should, if you don't orgasm with penile penetration, there's nothing wrong with you. That's you, very common. Do you have any tips on how to mold, like have multiple orgasms or is that just like it's just different for every people yes. for every person or is it is there something you can do when it comes to your actual vagina that can help you have multiple orgasms mm. well i think it's important to sort of say you know many of the things that we believe about sex are because of what a patriarchal society has told us right mm -hmm. so a patriarchal society wants a woman to have sex just with a penis they want a patriarchal society wants a mighty penis to not only bring her to orgasm once, but multiple times. Why? Because that makes the man feel better because it's like metric driven. Mm 
So I think that instead of thinking about metrics, like how many orgasms did I have or how fast did I have Mm -hmm. it? You think about how much fun did I have? How much pleasure did I have? Mm -hmm. Was this a satisfying experience for Mm me? So I, you know, I would say to think about that. Now, if you're wanting to try different things to say, Oh, well, maybe I want to see if I can or can't have more than one Mm -hmm. orgasm. Well, that's Mm -hmm. fine. That's great. The sex is about trying new fun things. And so that's Mm -hmm. okay. But I just want people to think that if that doesn't, how their body works, there's nothing wrong. Right. They're not a failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want so, to ask you a little bit about masturbation too, okay? Because we're going there today, going Roxy Soxy. There. We are on the way. Um, so yeah, so with masturbation, you know, a lot of times people use, I mean, you can use your hand, you can use a vibrator. There's all different ways, but there is a myth going around. And I don't know if this is true or not, that if you use mechanical stimu- mm-hmm. stimulation, like a vibrator, that you will eventually become desensitized your clitoris you won't have as intense Mm -hmm. orgasms so who profits from that myth men Men. right Mm -hmm. men profit by saying oh you should nothing is as good as my penis Mm. right so (laughs) you need to always say whenever you hear a myth about the vagina who profits from that myth does that make a man feel better about himself or does that make a woman feel better about herself Mm -hmm. right so that myth favors the man so yeah, it's bullshit. I mean, of course not. Does anyone ever say to men, well, if you jack off too many times, that's going to affect your pleasure from having a natural erection from being around a woman. Right. No, no. Don't say that. They don't say the so, yeah. is going to get broken. None of that risk. Right. I feel like there's such a sexual awakening right now for women and maybe it's been there all along and I just haven't been privy to it, Mm. but I feel like women are feeling more comfortable talking about sex, talking about self-pleasure, talking about like even promoting vibrators. You Mm. see people like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, she now has a line of vibrators. So Yes, you can pay more for something that's yeah. <laughs> that's that's like it looks very mantra. slick. <laughs> hey, I mean, the way she advertised that, it looks less sexual. Like, what is wrong with you? That's the whole point. Right. Like, her vibrator's intellectual. What are you even talking about? <laughs> it's about getting off. It's yeah. not about like reading Proust. So, like, why do you think women are now coming into this sexual awakening? Like what has happened? Are we just starting to come into our own power? Like what was the Mm. catalyst to us like starting to own our own sexual prowess and lives? Because I do feel like there's been an explosion of it lately. You know, I think that, you know, there's just different waves of feminism that have moved the needle forward. And I think this is just kind of part of maybe one of the next waves. And I actually would give a lot of credit to a lot of amazing sex educators and sex therapists who put out a lot of really good content on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I follow a lot of different ones who are fantastic and, you know, they're, you know, good sex therapy breaks down a lot of these, you know, myths mm-hmm. and misconceptions and gives people, a, you know, sort of honest spaces. And so I think that, you know, now we're able to talk about those things as opposed to being banned. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if social media were around 20 years ago, none of those accounts probably would have been allowed. I mean, even now, some of them get shadow banned now and then from using words. But so I think that society, I think there have always been people having these conversations. I think society is now able to tolerate them in public spaces. Mm -hmm. So I would sort of say that 
you know how when you light a piece of paper, it takes a while for the flame to catch. Mm-hmm. So I think the flame has been taking a while to catch about mm-hmm. this. I think it's always been there, but it's just needed. You know, now we're at this point in time where it's we're allowed to have these conversations because of you know all the hard work that people have sort of like done before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, I think it's kind of a culmination of a lot of things. Yeah, we got to carry it on. Um, but you know, Tam and I, we both have daughters and they're mm-hmm. young now. I mean, they're mm-hmm. six and seven, but eventually they're going to get to be, you know, preteens and teenagers and become sexually active. So for these girls sort of coming up, what are your thoughts um, on the HPV vaccine? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that is necessary for these young girls coming up or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, every single person should get vaccinated for HPV. Absolutely. Everybody, all genders, age nine to, you know, 12, get vaccinated. You bet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the chance, you know, everybody talks about wanting a cancer moonshot. Well, we have one. Mm-hmm. You know, we have one to eliminate cervical cancer or reduce it dramatically. Mm-hmm. And we're not only reducing cervical cancer, but all of the awful testing that happens when you're diagnosed with a precancer. People forget about that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women have to come in for biopsies and colposcopies, which can be painful for years, but they never mm-hmm. actually get cancer. But that's a burden. That's a huge, awful burden on them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then there's anal cancer. And, you know, we know that later in life, in sort of the 40s and 50s, there's a spike of HPV related throat cancer. You know, if we can prevent HPV um, exposure for people in their, their teens and twenties, you know, from oral sex with reducing HPV, then, you know, we can maybe reduce that burden of throat cancer down the road. We don't have that data yet, but it's an incredibly safe vaccine. There's absolutely no reason not to have it. And, um, you know, this is as someone who's seen many, many people, you know, traumatized physically and mentally from HPV related diseases, absolutely get the vaccine, get your kids vaccinated. Both my sons are vaccinated. Oh, okay. So talking about the vaccine, Roxy and I are fully vaccinated. Yay for Yay. Um, COVID. Yay. And I know there's been a lot of misinformation about fertility and the vaccine. I have at least a handful of women who are trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant who are foregoing the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. I do have some that have got the vaccine as well. So what is the misinformation that's out there? And how, how can we debunk that? Well, I think it's really important to point out that pregnancy is the worst time to have COVID, that there's a significant increased risk of having, if, of having complications from COVID when you're pregnant. Um, and a few months, a few weeks ago, a colleague in Toronto was tweeting that um, at their, their big sort of tertiary care hospital where they take care of all the sick people, 50% of people in their ICU were pregnant with COVID. Oh my God. Okay. So, so this is something that we know is really serious. And we, and we know this the same with influenza. So many respiratory viruses are really bad in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a concern. So, you know, the COVID vaccine is, we've, we've seen historically with vaccines, um, lies about fertility and lies about, you know, risks for women. This is all again, part of a patriarchal narrative. Why is nobody concerned about risks for, you know, men, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's all about, you know, purity and frightening women about, you know, purity culture and, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, pregnancy myths, but, you know, there's, there are no safety concerns with the vaccine. It's something that is, you know, really, you know, something that we know biologically and people have this misconception that it's sort of new, but mm. mRNA vaccines have been around actually for 10 to 15 years. They've been right. studying them for rabies, for HIV, um, you know, for, um, for a few other infections as well. So we have a lot of data on them mm. and biologically they're really 
quite safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously we have limited data on pregnancy, but we're accumulating it. And I think that um, certainly someone trying to get pregnant, I, I would say, absolutely. You want to get, now's the time to get vaccinated. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and during pregnancy, I mean, I think people have to make, because we don't have great data, people have to obviously make a decision that works for them. However, the American College of OBGYN um, feels that it's safe for pregnant people to get vaccinated. And I think that um, you have to look at your own individual risk. So if you're a pregnant person who works in a hospital um, and you have a high risk of being exposed to COVID, you're living in an area of the country where there's a lot of problems with COVID, you know, you have a different risk than maybe someone who works from home and you live in an area where there's very low risk of COVID. But, um, but generally, I think people can be assured that, that there are absolutely no safety concerns that, that we can see for, um, you know, for women of reproductive age, postmenopausal women, or, or during pregnancy. You know, so also speaking about, um, the cervix kind of going back to that, um, how often should we be getting pap smears? Because mm -hmm. one time I was in the doctor, I believe it was either last year or the year before she was saying that, you know, some people are getting them every year. Some people are now dropping back to every other year. Um, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Well, the rec the recommendations are certainly not every year. It's every three years starting wow. at the age 21. Yeah. And, and that's because, you know, we now know that the um, cervical cancer takes years to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you test people um, too often, uh, mm -hmm. what happens is you pick up minor abnormalities that would go away on their own. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, so it's, it's really important for people to see that, you know, that, um, and, uh, and then at the age of 30, we add in HPV co-testing and that also adds another, we don't, we don't recommend testing younger, you know, like 21 year olds for HPV because it's so common. Right. Mm. So, oh. um, so, you know, so, so the, um, yeah, so the recommendations are definitely not every year. If some doctor's telling you, you need a pap smear every year, and that's assuming you don't have a history of abnormal pap smear, because we're, this means I'm talking about like the general population, mm -hmm. someone who's had an abnormal pap smear may very well need follow-up once a year for several years. That's a totally different situation, but yeah, the general population, you do not need a pap, pap smear once a year. And if anyone's doing that, they're doing it to try to make money off of you. So oh, wow. that's so interesting because I thought I must book my pap smear uh -huh. because it's been a year and two months because oh, in your head, you oh, think yeah. every year is when you should go in. Mm -hmm. So I'm under the age of 40. When should I, or when should people start to get mammograms and are we doing them too late these days or, um, or is 40 around the age when people should start getting their breasts checked? Um, well, the variation, the guidelines sort of vary depending on who puts them out. So generally what we recommend at age 50, it's every year. Um, and between 40 and 50, it's kind of like every one to two years, depending on your individual risk factors and how you feel about it. And so, um, so yeah, so, but if you have a history of breast cancer in your family, mm -hmm. then there may, the recommendations may be different. Someone with a very strong history of breast cancer, you know, might need to have, or we may recommend genetic testing. So there mm -hmm. could be other things, but generally sort of around the age of 40 is when we recommend testing start and, you know, every kind of one to two years. You know, Tam and I haven't gone through menopause yet, but we know people who have. Obviously. I'm very afraid of it. I am <laughs> yes. not the nicest around my period. Yes, we're <laughs> a little scared. You know, we hear all these horror stories, right? So we hear about, you know, night sweats, hot flashes, you know, extreme vaginal dryness. So that sex is painful, just all these horrible, horrible things. And it kind of, it scares us, you know, like it scares people who haven't gone through it yet because you just hear all these horrible things about menopause. So is there a way that we, like, before we even go through it, is there a way that we can start 
preparing our bodies so that when that time does come, it's not as, you know, traumatic for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you only truly hear the horror stories, but that's about everything, right? People only talk about their terrible puberty or their terrible periods or their, mm-hmm. um, their terrible vaccine experience, right? You never hear people who have a good experience really talking about it. So I think that's the way we often share information. So I think that's important, but yeah, if people want to be prepared, they should buy my book, the menopause manifesto. Yes. Like, buy everything. this book. <laughs> um, you know, I think that we we've been taught to fear menopause because in a patriarchal society, our worth has been tied to our ovulation. We have basically been distilled to being broodmares, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if you're taking away the thing that the patriarchy thinks give you power, then you become irrelevant. And that's really just not the case. You know, the least important thing about um, a person with ovaries is their ability to ovulate. Like that's like your toenails are more interesting than your ability to ovulate. Like that's just something that, you know, we don't think that a a nine-year-old girl is less because she doesn't ovulate. Mm -hmm. So why would we think that a 54-year-old is less because they don't ovulate, right? So I think it's important to reframe it and talk about more like crossing the crimson bridge than, um, Aww, you know, than, than saying it's awful. So menopause does have symptoms. Sure. Um, people can have hot flushes. They can have night sweats. They can have vaginal dryness. Those things can be treated, right? So we have modern medicine for a reason. You know, menopause also starts a sequence of events that increases your risk for osteoporosis and for heart disease and diabetes. But there's things you can do about that. So, you know, I think that, we talk about menopause in this fearful way because that has suited a patriarchal narrative uh, because men are uncomfortable with women's bodies and they're, they don't even want to hear about a body that isn't sort of quote, quote, feminine forever. Mm. So, you know, I think that um, we just need to sort of reject that hypothesis and just start talking about it. And look, this is just another phase of life. And um, it's no more, you know, it's, it's, doesn't mean it's not a sign of your irrelevance. It's not an expiration date. Mm. Um, it's something that happens to everybody with ovaries and, um, it's certainly not the end of life. I didn't realize how much of a stigma there was surrounding just periods in general. Mm. Um, you know, I have a high social media and I have a lot of young girls on my social media and I talk about my period because I've had hormone issues and I've been trying to balance them after I've um, given birth. And so I talk about periods and I I talk about menstruation and Mm -hmm. it's like, I get the feedback in my direct messages. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for talking about something that I've been ashamed about my whole period life. And I was Mm -hmm. actually quite shocked. I was so so shocked that like, what do you mean? Like every single woman bleeds Mm -hmm. and yet we find it, you know, almost embarrassing, um, shameful, uh, vulnerable to talk about. And I just, I'm hoping that in the future, because there are, and this is what I want to talk about products now that are, you know, are there's period cups and there's period undies and there's brands that are really opening people's eyes of like, you know, you don't have to keep this a secret. We can sort of let our red flag fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that it's moving in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I think there's overall been just a cultural secrecy about women's bodies and mm-hmm. periods specifically because it's messy. It's gross, according to the mm-hmm. patriarchy. Um, and it's also a sign that you could be impregnated. So, you know, mm-hmm. gosh, we need to protect you. Uh, you know, historically, you know, women have 
like thousands of years ago, mm. were believed to have problematic bodies, that our bodies were less capable than a man's body, that our tissue, the actual tissue that we were made up with was moister and that our, our uterus was a problematic animal. They used to think that the uterus was like a wild animal inside a wild animal. So women were like double wild animals. And, you know, we're not so far removed from that awful thinking. And so, you know, the way to break it down is to say, look, yeah, it's, it's a period, like if that grosses you out, you have a problem, like what is wrong with it? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, I did my Ted talk on, on periods, mm -hmm. um, because they're just, people don't even like understand why periods are so heavy. Like mm -hmm. there must be a biological reason and there is, and you know, people should have access to that information. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And people don't have sex during their period. You know, that's such a taboo to even mm -hmm. like, well, a lot of people I do, but a lot of people I know don't uh, like women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that needs to be debunked as well. Like sex mm -hmm. during your period is wonderful for a lot of us. Yeah. I mean, that's why they make navy blue towels. <laughs> yeah. Is that why? <laughs> now I know. Cause I was always like, that is just a horrible color to have in my bathroom. I know. Like who likes, cause you know, you get a little bit of bleach on it and then it's stained, but yeah, I I'm convinced that's why black and navy blue towels exist. So you got your period towel, you put it down on the bed because you know, like, let's be honest, you don't want to, who wants to wash the fitted sheet if you don't have to yeah, exactly. folding yeah. that thing is just too much. I'm sorry. I'm a bad laundry <laughs> folder. So, so yeah, you get, you get your period towel. It's like, mm. That's You're not the Navy blue towel, baby. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, but again, women have sort of backled their whole lives, their whole reproductive biology to make men comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and why are women ashamed of having sex during their period if that's what they want? Well, because they've been made to feel ashamed by a patriarchal society. So I think that that's, and often we forget that that patriarchal society has been perpetuated by women. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if that's how you've been brought up and that's how your mother was brought up and everybody was brought up that sex on your period is wrong and dirty and could hurt you, then you, it's no surprise that you would think that. It's so interesting, you know, because um, during our period, during our cycles, you know, there are a lot of different things that you can use, you know, to control the blood flow or, you know, do, uh, you, you for your personal hygiene. And personally for me, I use organic tampons. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people that I've heard, you know, are not fans of tampons. They say, you know, it's bad for your vagina and your overall vaginal health. Um, what are your thoughts on some of the products that are out there, be it the pad, the, um, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the tampon, the period, up. Um, what do you think about the underwear? underwear. Well, yeah. I mean, organic tampons are a scam. Like they're not are better they? for your body. Yeah. There's not, there's no like pesticide residues in tampons. You know, who are you, who's telling you that the people selling organic tampons. So it's BS they, then they, they've, the, the oh. people selling organic tampons have not submitted any data to the FDA saying that their product is different oh. or, you know, they're so much more expensive. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> every tampon gets approved by saying it's the same as previous tampons on the market. They don't have any data. They haven't published any data. It's all a scam. If you want to buy organic because that fits with your life brand, well, sure, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I put regular Tampax in my body for 30 years. Like it's not like there's no pesticides or harmful residues. And that's, a that's 
all created by people who's selling you the more expensive alternative, right? So, you know, so keep that in mind. Okay. So there's lots of different period products. People should Mm -hmm. use what they want. I think there's great options available. If you like menstrual cups, great. If you like, if you like tampons, great. If you like pads, great. If you like period underwear, great. I might not, if you have a super heavy periods, they might not work well enough, you know, but they're great. They're great for people with light flow and they're Uh really great for people that, you know, have heavy flow and might occasionally leak through a tampon or, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, cause it's just the thing with period underwear is like, if you have a heavy, if you're someone who has to change a tampon three times in a day, you're going to have to change your period underwear three times during the day. And those things are expensive. Mm. And then you're going to take it off at work and then put it in a baggie and take it home. So you kind of have to like work through that. But if you're like a 13 year old with irregular periods and you're just starting school and you don't know, and you're worried that what if my period starts, gosh, period underwear is fantastic. You don't have to worry. You've got that on and it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to, if you get your period when you don't know when you're going to get it, because that's what happens when you're a teen, you've got some backup there. Um, so yeah, I think options are great. You know, there are people who like reusable menstrual pads. There are people Mm -hmm. who make their own reusable menstrual pads. Great. The more options, the better. So how do they make the reusable ones? Is it just out of cloth? Yeah, it's just like a cloth diaper, right? The same material, mm. absorbent oh. material, and it's sewn into a pad shape. And often there's several layers. It's like, uh-huh. like a terry cloth kind of mm-hmm. material. Uh-huh. And then usually there's snaps and they go around the underwear and then snap on the other side. Am I going to catch you at the sewing machine now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. tampons for us yeah. with women uh, on top branded. Oh, I love <laughs> it. That should be a new product yes. to sell. Women yeah. on top, well, reusable yeah, pads. <laughs> but there are also some options that are dangerous. Um, oh, so for example, uh, you can buy crocheted tampons on Etsy. What? So don't use those. Yes. Ooh. Um, don't use sea sponges. Those mm. are also okay. not safe and not recommended. So, you know, you have to remember that the word natural is just a marketing thing. It's not anything medical. Does it mean anything? Mm-hmm. That is incredible to know. Um, wow. I've wasted so much of my money on natural products. Um, yeah, so, I, well, so, I mean, the word natural literally yeah. has no meaning. It did right. like, like it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And when you think about wellness, think about all the, the marketing terms they use good, clean, mm-hmm. pure, natural. Those are the exact same words of purity culture. We are being fed, spoon fed something that we don't even know is in our subconscious brains. Um, I want to talk about periods and what a, if there's such thing as a healthy looking period. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always heard that, you know, really uh, rich red blood that's not clotted, um, that isn't, you know, um, that doesn't come in waves is like the healthiest form of a period. Is that a lie? And everyone yeah, has that's a lie differently mm, and yeah, are clots. Okay. Or cuts not okay. Is the color, okay? is mm. the color change for different people? Um, what does a healthy period look like? Or are they all versions of that? Yeah. The color of the blood has nothing to do from a health standpoint. That's a really common lie you see on Instagram. So mm. the color of the blood has nothing. Some people have clots some people don't it, like none of that means anything. What matters is the volume. So if you're soaking your clothes, if you're soaking through your period products, well, then the volume might be too much. Um, if you're bleeding for very long periods of time, you know, more than six days, you know, those are times to sort of definitely report your period because mm-hmm. you could be losing too much blood. You could be having an abnormally heavy period, but there's 
no ideal, like that's a completely made up fever dream from, I guess, naturopaths or somebody, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no like, you know, special color that your blood should be. Um, you know, I've seen, I see all these charts circulating on Instagram all the time and it's all made up. Oh, wow. Wow. So uh, kind of along with that, I know a lot of women get a little self-conscious when they have Mm -hmm. their periods because they feel like their vaginas smell or there's some sort of an odor. Mm -hmm. So are vaginas supposed to smell? Is there supposed to be kind of an odor? Is it, is it supposed to be odorless? Like what? And does that have anything to do with your health? I mean, there's no abnormal smell with menstruation. Um, There are definitely maybe are men that are squeamish about blood. And I think that's a really important thing. Like I see women every day. I walk into rooms of people who are having heavy periods and there's no period smell. I don't walk in and go, Ooh, I can tell you're on your period. Mm -hmm. You know, there, so I think that's a really common myth. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're having a lot of bleeding, might you smell some blood? Well, sure. If you cut yourself, you might smell some blood as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but nobody goes, Oh my God, I can smell blood when you cut yourself. Like, so, you know, I think that, you know, bodily functions have smells and they're not abnormal. They're bodily functions. We've made them abnormal because it, that somehow that benefits the narrative of telling women that they're dirty and their bodies are problematic. Why is there such an, I just thought about this when we were talking about, um, the ovarian cyst, why does it seem like there's such an uptick in women who are suffering from menstrual issues like PCOS, endometriosis, cysts. I feel like I hear it. Um, and it's a more of a common subject that people are suffering with these, with these issues. Is it happening more or are we just talking about it more? Um, I don't think there's, I mean, I think part of the problem is, you know, many of the studies from kind of the eighties and the nineties are maybe not as good quality. So, Mm -hmm. so do we, is it truly an increased incidence or are we just talking about it more? I I would suspect from, um, you know, from a, from a standpoint of, of endometriosis, we're probably just talking about it more. It's probably becoming just a greater awareness. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think the incidence is, is truly increasing. What Um, can people do? Well, that's like any... Yeah, that's not really a question I can kind of answer because it's really requires a consultation with the person to find out what's bothering them, what's going on, what they've tried before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say that, you know, if you're having menstrual cramps that are disabling and that you're not able to function, then you should see your provider. Mm -hmm. And um, it may be as simple as taking ibuprofen a few days before your period starts. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be that the birth control pill will help you. It could be that uh, IUD with the hormone progestin, like the Marina will help you. Mm -hmm. And it could mean that you might need surgery to see if you have endometriosis, it could mean that there's another cause for your pain. So sometimes Mm -hmm. people can get muscle spasm during their period, and that can be the cause of their pain. So Mm -hmm. it's really requires an assessment to kind of see what goes on. What do you find on exam? How much someone's disabled by their, you know, by their symptoms, by their pain, what treatments they feel comfortable taking. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not really something that can unfortunately be summed up into kind of like a a one-liner. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, as I mentioned before, Tamina and I have two young daughters and Tamina is another one as well. And, um, you know, sex eventually is going to come up as a topic at some point, you know, my daughter 
has already asked me where do babies come like where does a baby come from and i sort of used gardening terms i said well daddy planted a seed in mommy's tummy and there you grew <laughs> you know trying to make it pretty basic for her right now while she's six but um you know at some point we're gonna need to explain sex i'm you know and i'd rather it be me than like her friends. So what is the best way to kind of explain it like that? I mean, for me, my back, my background, my dad's an oncologist. So I come from a very medical family where we mm -hmm. use like all medical terms and things like that. But is that the best way to explain sex to your kids? I don't know. Well, I think, you know, for, for, you know, just sort of someone starting out, I mean, I think it's important to just use anatomical terms, you know, mm -hmm. to not use terms like down there or your private parts or your special parts to call it the labia. So you're going to wipe your labia and, you know, you, you don't have special names for toes or fingers or your nose. Mm -hmm. So why do you need a special term for your vulva? Mm -hmm. You need a special term because the patriarchy tells you it's something that's, um, that's shameful <laughs> or, you know, needs to be protected from men, mm -hmm. right? So just use body parts. And, um, you know, I think that the, a good rule of thumb is to explain things correctly, um, you know, to sort of maybe go away from euphemisms if possible. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you just talk, and then as soon as they start glassing over, stop the conversation. <laughs> because you've told them what they needed to hear. You don't need to keep going and going. So the kids will be ready when they tell you. So, uh -huh. you know, you, you can start explaining it. And if as soon as they look like they're tuning out, then you don't even have, you could just move on to the next next thing and and the you know there's also so many great books that explain things i mean mm -hmm. there are people who are professional educators professional you know sex educators who know how to explain these things to kids in well in really good terms so mm -hmm. um you know i would think look for a book that speaks to you you know written by somebody who you know has good training i think those are really great things kind of leave around the house and when mm -hmm. kids are interested they'll pick them up is there my fear though yeah my fear is that you tell them you know a penis goes into a vagina mm -hmm. and then sperm through pleasure ejaculate i don't know if you know being able to talk to a kid like that which is the correct way to explain sex it almost my fear is does it not make them curious you know does it not make them more sexually in tune if they really know what's going on and again we can't hide it from them forever mm. but maybe there's an age that you start to yeah, what age is you know that? maybe they find it but then if you don't tell them mm -hmm. i'm sure they'll find it out somewhere else right you know, I certainly educating young children is not my area of expertise, but mm -hmm. I am unaware of any data that supports the idea that telling kids makes them go have sex. Mm -hmm. So when you tell, when you tell, you'll tell your nine-year-old how to drive safely and no one's worried that that means that a nine-year-old is going to go steal your car and go mm -hmm. for a drive. Right. So I think kids sometimes try things because they're curious. And if they have information, then maybe they're less curious, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, there's probably, you know, age appropriate ways to discuss it. Certainly, you know, I think um, kids will sort of let you know, I think when they're ready, but again, I'm, this is not my area of expertise mm -hmm. is sort of, you know, educating three, four, five-year-olds, but my kids have always known, I mean, cause I have models of vaginas and things around the house. They hear me have conversations and, you know, they're, they're totally like nonplussed by any of it. So mm -hmm. they're 17, they seem to turn out okay. And did you, what, what age was that that you, they sort of like knew what sex was or when you explained it to them? I don't know, probably like forever because I just have always like, yeah, this has been just, my job their whole yeah. lives. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they've been exposed to it. I mean, we were at a baby shower when 
I think they were five mm-hmm. and someone was talking about how the stork was going to bring the baby. There were kids there as well. And mm-hmm. one of my sons said, storks don't bring babies. They come out of vaginas, except <laughs> us. We were cut out of our mommy's tummy with a knife, not a fork. <laughs> it was like very specific that it was a knife, not a fork. Yay, C-section here too. We're all I know, C's. C-section We're all C's, babies. You know? And he was yeah. like, he said the word vagina. He didn't think anything like you say the word vagina. Like who get, like, it's not like, yeah. You know, you, if you would say the word mouth, like, mm. why is it wrong yeah. to say the word vagina? vagina so, yeah. you know, I think, I think, you know, to really answer how you should do it, you probably mm. need to talk to a sex therapist or, or an educator mm. who, who does that. But certainly I, I don't think that there's any literature to support telling kids mm-hmm. um, the truth about sex makes them run out and increases their risk. In fact, if they know about it, then if, they happen mm-hmm. to come across some predator, then they would actually know what's happening and they'd be able mm-hmm. to say, you know, maybe they'd be better able to, um, to, to tell someone what someone tried to do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, then it wouldn't be shameful and they wouldn't hide it. And, you know, so, so yeah, you might need to talk to someone else, but that's my two cents. Mm. And I also feel like, you know, everyone needs to start getting on the same page, um, especially like how they teach at schools, because what happens is you're at that party and then just say it's my kid who's like, no, you know, a penis goes in a vagina. Then all of a sudden I'm the pariah and no one wants to be my because all the parents are not like, great, you've kind of you've the cat's out of the bag. Now everyone knows how <laughs> a baby is made. So like, yeah, it's getting that information out, talking about it more, mm. having people more on the same page about like, it's OK to talk about the, you know, penis, vagina, mm-hmm. sex you know, have those conversations. So it's not so taboo that like, we're all giving different information. So kids are confused all the time. So if we all just Mm -hmm. start to go in that direction, I think it would be a lot easier for all of us, all of us as parents. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, information is power Mm -hmm. and um, learning about your body isn't shameful. And, you know, I like, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, can you keep that down or talking about the vagina or whatever in public? And I'm like, no, like if you don't like, if, you're eavesdropping, <laughs> if you're eavesdropping on my conversation uh-huh. and you don't like what you hear, I don't actually care. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So I think it's just facts don't hurt people. Mm-hmm. Lies do. I think that that's um, facts give people information so they can make choices. They know what's happening to their body. They can be empowered. Um, and lies do the opposite. So, well, speaking of lies and truth, Tamman, should we do some myth? I, know, I was thinking about that. I was like, we should let her go, but then I was like, Woo! but then we kind of have to do a MythBuster. Yes, let's do some. If you're a okay. game, Doctor Jen, just a couple questions, game. and then you are yes. all good to go. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Toxic shock syndrome is can potentially happen if your tampon is left in for more than eight hours. So toxic shock syndrome is definitely associated with tampon use, but it's actually really uncommon. It's sort of like in the range of like lightning strike kind of risk. Mm. Um, So, and no one actually really understands all of the constellation of factors that go into sort of increasing the risk. There's a lot of different things. So prolonged use of a tampon is one risk factor, but since this is such a rare condition nowadays that um, it's really hard to say more than that. So, um, you know, preventing a super rare condition, it's really hard, 
you know, to kind of study that. So, mm-hmm. um, so in general, we tell people that, you know, it's probably a good idea to change your tampon, you know, kind of every eight hours or so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But changing it more frequently isn't necessarily better because there's a lot of data that shows one of the things with toxic shock syndrome is when you insert the tampon, you're pushing oxygen into the vagina. And that actually mm-hmm. helps this bacteria grow. Normally the vagina has no oxygen in it. So, um, so changing your tampon every two hours is certainly not going to make you safer. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Um, if your herpes is dormant, you cannot, (laughs) we're going there. (laughs) Who are we talking about, (laughs) Roxy? (laughs) There's gotta be somebody out there that that can relate. If your herpes is dormant, you cannot pass it on to someone else. Well, dormant isn't really a medical term. So it's kind of really hard for me to sort of, um, say, what that means. What I can tell you is that um, even if you don't have lesions of herpes, you can absolutely spread it. So you shed the vi- So when you shed the virus is when you're at risk of transmitting it, but you can still shed the virus even if you don't have active lesions. So we people with herpes will go through episodic times where they're shedding the virus. And yes, you are contagious during that time. You're more contagious when you have a lesion because you're shedding more virus, um, but it is still possible absolutely to transmit it um, when there's no active lesion. Can you get an STD from, oh, sorry. You can get an STD from a toilet seat. No, you can't. You can't get an STD from a toilet seat. Hmm. Impossible. Wow. Okay. Okay. Eating too much sugar will give you a yeast infection. Yeah, no, that's not true. <gasps> not true. Not true. Have so a piece of cake. The, okay, good. <laughs> we can tell the candy we want. Um, the smell of your vagina indicates the health of your vagina. Um, well, I think that's a really complicated question to answer. So, um, so, so yes and no. Um, don't go, you know, if you have, if you notice a change in smell, then that could be a sign of a medical condition. Absolutely. Um, so I would say more of a change is something that, you know, maybe should be reported. There's a condition called bacterial vaginosis, and there's a sexually transmitted disease called trichomonas that are both associated with a change in vaginal odor. Okay. It is impossible to go through menopause without the dreaded symptoms that we all hear about. Yeah, that's not true. There are people, lots of people go through menopause and, and don't have a bad time. I, you know, we just hear the negative stories, you know, about 25% of people really don't have a significant issue with hot flushes at all. Also how much you're bothered by something depends on a lot of things, right? Your, whether you're stressed from other factors, whether your overall health. And so, um, so menopause is a vast diaspora and there's a really um, wide range of experiences. I don't know if I'm going to leave this question in, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do it. Um, Pineapple juice changes the taste of things on both, in both, in both sexes. Um, Well, I'm not a, I'm not a penis or ejaculate (laughs) expert. Um, I'm just an amateur, but, uh, but no, for, for people with vaginas, absolutely not. That's a total myth. So the cucumber must be a myth too, because I've also heard the cucumber. 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 Yeah, that's if a myth. Eat the Is cucumber. that why you've been eating so many cucumbers, <laughs> yeah. Roxy? You Every time it. I check like... on, you're eating a cucumber. <laughs> okay, last question, and we'll let okay. this amazing lady go. Okay, let's do it. Let's see. Oh. Um, cervical cancer is always caused by the HPV virus. Uh, not always. There are other causes of cervical cancer, but most of them are caused by HPV. So, um, so the bulk. 
So take well, care of you. yourself, ladies. Take thank care you yourself. so much for being here. Oh, um, my pleasure. I yes. like I'm reassessing my whole life right now <laughs> and all the things that I thought I knew for 37 years. Um, yeah. But where can people find you? Where t- can let them know about your books, where you are, where you're speaking um, so everyone can follow your journey? Sure. So I'm at Dr. Jen Gunter on Twitter and on Instagram and Dr. Jen Gunter on Facebook. I have a Substack called The Vigenda with a J. Um, for, and uh, I write about uh, feminism, medicine, health, politics there. And um, I have The Vagina Bible, which came out in 2019. And uh, May 25th is when the Menopause Manifesto comes out. I love it. Yay. Well, thank you so much. And guys, you can find us on Women on Top Official on Instagram. And Women on Top Podcast on Facebook. And we have a Women on Top group on Clubhouse. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment. And let us know who you want us to have on the show and what you want us to talk about. Yes. More vaginas. Yes. Vagina, Um, vagina, vagina. Will you come back again? Dr. Jen, will you come back again and visit us? Sure, absolutely. Yay, (laughs) we love it. Okay. Thanks, guys, so much. I am Tamin Sursok. And I am Roxy Manning. And we are Women on Top. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.